Hey, this is Brian. So at a certain point in this interview with Richard Marks, which is, by the way, uh, an honest and deep uh, conversation, Richard holds nothing back. It's awesome. But there's a section in it where name is bleeped because he tells a story and I think it's about somebody I know. It turns out it's not about that person. I checked. I found out who it is. Uh, the guy with the hobby stamp, which you'll hear about, was really uh, an amazing guy named Carter, who was a record business uh, executive. And he, uh, he was really close friends with one of my very best friends, and I, I really liked Carter. And I think my explanation stands for Carter um, as much as it would have for, for the person I, I thought it was. So when you get to that part, that's what's going on. And um, enjoy the podcast. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm super excited about this. Um, In a weird way, my guest today, who is the great Richard Marks, one of the most accomplished songwriters walking around. And it's weird, Richard, because you were a big pop star. I think people don't, most people don't know how successful you are as a songwriter and what a songwriter you are. Right. I mean, most people don't read the credits, you know? Yeah. I have since I was a little kid, obviously. Right. Right. but it's it's an odd thing when you have that kind of you know huge success at a young age. You're kind of imprinted in people's minds, right? Yeah, and they understand you a certain way. Uh, absolutely, and yeah. they might not think about the craft. No, they think about the mullet. <laughs> yeah, well, it was a hell of a mullet. Dude. It was a hell of a mullet. But the the great thing for me is, um, you know, I first heard of you when I was in high school because and and. Uh, I'm not going to name any names, but the, there was a person who was the coolest person older than me in, in my, my high school. And in fact, I was in ninth grade. I didn't, I was in ninth grade and, and they, she, she knew I loved bands and she was the coolest girl in the whole high school and, and had a big, huge senior year party and asked me to pick the band for her oh, party. And she said, wow. if I did, I could come to the party with all the seniors. And you were a freshman? I was a freshman. It was amazing. My friend Holy Peter Zizzo and I, shit, Peter is a great songwriter. The two of us together went and found the best band. And then we got to go to the party with the seniors. That's so I awesome. knew her well. And her sister was my year younger than me. And we were friends. Right. And then I remember hearing she's dating this incredible songwriter. And you once came through New York and we briefly, I, we briefly met. Yeah. And, that and that's was, before I knew your dad or anything, right? Yeah, that before was you like, were famous. I mean, yeah. that was before you were famous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was like, they, I remember them saying, and they were a musical family. Right. They right. were a musical family. Right. Because the mother was a really good musician. Yeah. And I, so I trusted them. And I remember they were like, you got to meet this this guy. So that when my father mentioned you to me, when <laughs> I went, was like 22, yeah. I was like, that's that guy. <laughs> Wait, that's true? Dude, that's that amazing. Yes. So it's great to get to talk to you. Yes. So here's where I want to start. The, when I started this podcast, the, the premise was about moments when people have these inflection points and, and what they were able to know at the time. So I have to ask you, tell the story. How old were you when you wrote Right Here Waiting? Can you talk about from like getting that idea to when you finished, did you know what you'd done? Mm-hmm. So where were you in your life? Uh, I was on my first tour. And um, look, you know better than almost anybody that when you do your first when you put out your first single and your your label is a is is distributed by EMI it's sort of like a secondary label it's you know the, you, the budget was nothing for the album and you're hoping for the best and all i remember was thinking if i can just sell enough albums to make another album cuz i had a one album deal i'd been rejected by every label for 4 years up to that point oh we got to talk okay so based we'll upon these some of these songs that became huge hits by the way you, uh, that's really important for the people listening who all yeah. wonder about. Yeah, that's an and important. I have a big thing. thing about these gatekeepers, as you know, where yeah. I just think they're they don't know a thing. Well, I mean, I, the, the 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 short version is that songs like "Should Have Known Better" that we talked about before this, and "Endless Summer Nights," which was a massive hit, those were as they sounded on the, on the radio, because they I didn't change them really much. I produced them the demos myself. Those songs were rejected by every label. Every label, multiple times for three years. How, okay, how old were you then? 19, 20, 21. Because you were so young when you got success. Yeah, but I didn't, so I, my first record came out was 23. But was you're, you're in college. I, I never went to or college. But you weren't, you were in just... I was in, the, I was in the Lionel Richie recording studio right. college. No, I know the story that Lionel yeah. sort of took you... No, I never went to college. But when you were making those, you made those demos that yeah. you produced, 
How would you get it to the labels and how would you hear that they passed? And more importantly, how did that land on you, the passes? Oh, it was brutal. And it may, I think it, it, I went very quickly from being hurt by it to being pissed off. That's really useful, right? Yeah. Yeah, I used that fuel. And the answer is uh, I was always tenacious about – this is before the internet, of course, right? So when, when I even look back on it, it's kind of remarkable. But I would find out who's the A&R person at that label, who's the person at this label, who could I talk to at this, and I would just collect this information. I would cold call people. I, would, I, I once got Clive Davis on the phone just on a cold call. When, when you were a kid? When I was a kid. And what'd you say? I just said, I'm a songwriter, and I, th- I dropped some name that maybe would impress him or whatever. And he talked to me for at least five minutes and was very gracious and very nice. And he said, you know, send me, here, put attention, my secretary, blah, 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 blah. And I sent my demo tape. Well, it was just a song or two. And he wrote me a letter back saying, um, these are not hit songs. But there is great talent here, and you are a good songwriter. You're on your way to being a great songwriter, so don't quit. But I'm all about hit songs, and these are not hit songs. You need to have like a major hook, a better hook, blah, blah, blah. He was so, and I've, you know, every time I've run into him over the years, I remind him of that because he probably doesn't remember that. But he was, uh, I mean, the fact that he took the time to do that is. Well, I often talk about this, about that kind of criticism, how that kind of criticism can be very helpful. Yeah. If you, Because obviously you're disappointed. You see the thing from Clive. You're excited. Sure, sure I was disappointed he passes. for a second. But he was encouraging me because it wasn't like, you know, there was a famous executive. I can't remember who it was, and he's, it's not worth naming. But there was a guy that would, um, he was an A&R guy, and he would send back people's uh, demo tapes. He had a stamp that said hobby. And he would stamp their tape hobby and send it back to them, like just to be an asshole. Yeah, so I mean, I think that, I, I worked for that guy. He probably it did. Was, yeah, that's not, that probably. I think it rings a bell. And if it was, if you're listening, if it wasn't you, you did something similar. But his justification for it, and he was like, "If I can save them a lot of trouble, Brian, I'm going to save them that. If they could, he goes, if they'll listen to me and quit, they were never going to make it. And if they don't, and they say fuck you, then and they're going to make it. I've I, also done them a favor. That I way. totally get that. And I hope that he listens to this, and I and I hope he listens beyond what you just said to what I'm about to say, which is I totally get that, and I run into that a lot. I'll hear somebody will say, "Oh, you've got to listen. Can you look at the YouTube video of my my nephew?" And I'll it'll just be awful, like awful. Like how could you possibly think that that's good? But I will never say anything except, you know what? He's just got to keep working at it or whatever. I find something positive to say. But the most important thing is, wouldn't you? Can we all agree that David Foster is somebody that? should be respected in terms of his opinion? Yeah, of course. David Foster told me I shouldn't sing. David Foster told me to not sing. But you wouldn't listen. First right. of all, how? I need the story. Tell the story well, and how did it land with on him. you? I was working I met him through, you know, just, I was, I was a hustler, man. I was like, I would, you know, pick up jobs singing background vocals and Lionel Richie. Where were you? We're going to get back to, we're going to get back to right here waiting, but okay. Yes, so who we were, will. no, I'll get, make sure. So go ahead, tell me, where were you at this time? So, you were hustling. Where were you born? Chicago. Right. And how old were you when you realized this songwriting thing took got hold of you? Fifteen. And so I was trying to get laid. Right. Sure. And did it work right then? No, no not yet. Not yet. You have to get good. You have to write hits. <laughs> Clive was right, man. <laughs> Come on. It's big weird. choruses. I started writing hits. I started to get laid. Yeah. Big choruses. Come on, man. <laughs> no. Uh, the the. But, but what happened? How'd you get the bug? Was it Billy Joel? Like, what was it that you heard? It was Billy Joel. It was uh, Elton. It was um, Maurice Darryl White. Hall, I imagine, a little too. A little, a little bit, but more Maurice White, yeah. Earth, Wind, and Fire. Earth, Wind, and Fire, of course. Um, and even, like, I had an uncle that turned me on to Sam Cooke. I and, loved him when I was a kid. Okay, well, he was he's probably my favorite singer Live of all time. Live at the Harlem Renaissance. Jesus. That was my, that, that Live at the Harlem Square, whatever that album was, I wore it out. Yeah. So I became obsessed with his singing at 12 or 13. But then I stood, because we were talking about liner notes. Yes. And then I was like, oh my God, he wrote all these songs. He wrote Chain Gang. He right. wrote You Send Me. He wrote all these songs. He wrote A Change Is Gonna Come. By himself, by the way. No, co- no oh, nine collaborators. Yes. And so that was, I will say that the single most important light bulb moment for me wanting to be a songwriter was when I realized that Sam Cooke wrote his own songs. That's and then I was incredible. like, I want to do that. I want to write my own songs. I don't want to sing other people's songs. And then, Did you know then, you were a singer then? 
Yeah, I, I started singing when I was five. Right. I was I, I sang on commercials and stuff. I, I had you know I had really good pitch, and so I was I was on my way to being a singer. But it wasn't until then that, and then the songwriting completely take took over. And then I just wanted to write songs for other people, and like I just wanted to be a motherfucker songwriter. Right. That's just what I great to this day. That's all I really want is to always be a motherfucker of Just a to be able to walk into a room and fucking lay that down. Yeah. Have it. Yeah. Be and able to I, nail I just, it. I always have my skill set as a, as, a, as a craftsman and as a songwriter be where I feel like it should be. And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Well, no, it's so incredibly hard to do. You know, it's a, it is like that hobby stamp thing. It's a hobby of mine. Like, I write songs. And uh, the... It is so difficult, even if you're a professional writer who's written in so many different genres and types of writing yeah. as I have, when you have to write songs, not just words, but you got to write a song and you have to really think about meter. And if you're strict about rhyme, yeah. it's, and you're trying to communicate something and new. And I'm also trying really hard to avoid cliches. I'm trying to not say what you've heard a million times before. And because I'm a, I'm a relationship-oriented songwriter... I don't write up topical songs. I don't write, you know, uh, songs about politics or issues for the most part. I mean, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, I love songs about relationships and about emotion. When you're in that, that's like, holy shit, man. Like, what else is there to say? But there's always more to say or say it in a different way. Yeah, because right when you think you can't, someone like Dylan writes most of the time. Right. And then you go, how the fuck did he right. say that? Why hasn't anyone said that before? Right. How did he figure that out? And I mean, you've had a couple of those in your life where you've written a song and it's just been the thing everyone wished they could say to their boy or girlfriend or other. Yeah. And you found a new, a new way to say it. But so you, I'm curious about a couple of things. When you had that obsession at 15, had the other kids treat you? Were you popular? Did you use it to help yourself? Um, that's a good question. I don't think I was either. I wasn't unpopular and I wasn't popular. I was the kid who sang. Right. There was nobody else in my school who sort of really was good at that. And but I wasn't um I was like kind of a mess. I was I had a Jufro and like I I was uncomfortable with the way I looked and So you didn't have confidence. This didn't, I didn't give have you confidence, confidence right away. At all. No, 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 no. It, that it began to give me confidence because and I remember this too. I had the biggest crush my sophomore year of high school on Sarah Blackwell, who was a senior. And there was this vocal group uh, that was all grades. And there was this, um, and we did a, a road trip to some other school to sing. So, so it was like freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors all mixed in to do this, to make up this group. Right. And we're on the bus, and there was, I joined it really, really to be near her. In fact, I even played football one year because she was a cheerleader. Only because she was a Oh, man, you had a bad for a Sarah Blackwell. Playing. Look at me. Do you think I should play football? I, but I played football just so I could be around Sarah Blackwell because she was a cheerleader. Right. And she had no interest in me. I could not. I mean, zero. So a year later, we're in this vocal group together. And again, she's, she doesn't pay any attention to me. I don't, know, I don't know how to talk to her. We're in the bus coming back from this school. And... Somebody's and the bus is playing. There was a radio. There was right. Yes. They were playing whatever pop station, and a duet came on called "The Closer I Get to You" by Donny Hathaway and Roberta Flack. And I don't know what Brian. What possessed me to do this? We're sitting there, and the girls are kind of like because it was a popular song at the time. It's a fucking great song. I yeah, sing it by heart. Yeah. Of and the girls are just going "Closer I Get to, Right. And Donny's part comes in, and I stood up and. Over and over again, I try to tell myself that we... Well, Sarah fucking Blackwell got... I got her attention. She noticed. And it was like, she treated me completely different. That must have been like a drug for you. It was... And I never dated her. But I... Because she... There was no way she was going to date a sophomore. But I knew that I got... Like, I knew that all of a sudden I was attractive to her in you whatever way. You were a different way. person. I was a different yeah, person. You were distinguished. Suddenly... You distinguished yourself. She came, by the way, side note, she came to a show I did about three years ago. Yes. Because I actually stayed in, not in touch with her, but I would randomly be in touch with her. And she came to a couple of gigs. But I invited her to this show. She lives in Atlanta. And she said, oh, I already have tickets. I bought 12 tickets because I'm bringing a bunch of my friends. 
And I said, well, please at least come backstage. Uh, yeah. So she comes backstage and she and her other 11 friends, including her husband, are all wearing t-shirts with my name in the front and on the back are all different song titles. Oh, amazing. And she, her shirt said, should have known better. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> right? Yes. How Did you ever tell her, by the way, that? I had the big crush on oh, you? Oh, no, no, no. We have, we have, I told every, like the first time I you saw her whole... years later when I was doing well and she came to some gig, she was married, at the, she'd gotten married and I told her husband, I said, do you know how hard I worked to try to get this girl to date me? Oh, and that's like, fantastic. That is so funny, man. Yeah. Right, so you were the guy who who could sing. Yeah, you were this songwriter. So kid. that gave me some confidence. But, but did the ambition in you immediately? Because as you say, by a young age, I mean, by twenty three, your first album came out. So yeah, I know I've been around kids like where um, I know how much you have to grind. Yeah, basically to make that it's kind of thing pretty happen. much twenty four hours a day. So how did that? How did that work in your household and in your life? When did you say to yourself or to the people around you? I think I actually have, I have something here. Well, the, the, the leg up that I had was that both my parents were musicians. Right. My dad was incredibly successful, started as a jazz pianist, and then became a pioneer in the jingle industry, and one of the most successful jingle writer and producers ever. And so I grew up, he had his own recording studio at a certain point. Uh, Bruce Swedeen, who mixed all the Michael Jackson records, was his house engineer until he went off and worked with Quincy. So I grew up around... My dad and all these incredible Chicago musicians making not songs or records, but 30 to 60 second hits. Yes. My dad had this knack for catchiness. Two scoops of raisins in a package of Kellogg's Raisin Bran. Your dad wrote that? Yeah. Right. Ask any mermaid you happen to see. Wow. What's the best tune? I mean, think about that. You're given the lyric. Ask any mermaid you happen to see. <laughs> What's the best tuna? Chicken of the sea. And my dad uh, came up with something that was so catchy and clever and memorable. And so they encouraged me. My mom was a great singer. She sang on all the jingles. They constantly reinforced my talent. They constantly. They knew you had the. Re they knew you had the. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean. Starting with hiring me to sing on all these jingles when I was a kid, I sang on all the kid jingles for right. Peter Pan Peanut Butter and Nestle's Crunch Bars and stuff like that. So I grew up in the studio. I I knew I could sing. I mean, you had the 10,000 hours before you were 18 years totally. old or whatever. Totally. Right. So you knew you could sing. You were actually comfortable with a mic. You totally. knew how to, you knew a studio didn't freak you out. No. In, in fact, fact, you were I, safe there. When I, you know, I was going to go to Northwestern. That was the plan. And then when, uh, and I've told this story a million times, that when Lionel Richie heard this demo tape of my first four songs, and had the graciousness to call the number on the back of the cassette. How'd you get it to him? Through a guy that knew the guy we were talking about in at um, Emory University. A friend of a friend of a friend. Oh, knew wow. Somebody in the Commodores organization. Your, your friend Josh knew somebody? Yes. And he just got it to someone in the Commodores? Well, no, Josh was just playing my demo tape in his apartment on, on campus because he loved what I did. Yes. And his friend was like, who is that you keep playing? Because he played it just like you would play a Journey record, right? Sure. He goes, oh, it's this guy I went to high school with, and he's out in L.A. now trying to make it. And Or no, 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 this is even before. That's right, because he's a year older than me. So I was, he said, he's still a senior in high school, but he, you know, he, he's going to go to L.A., I think, at some point and try to be in the music business. And so he goes, well, his buddy says, well, I know a guy who knows a guy. <laughs> and dude, it was like three months later, that my phone rang at home at my parents' house. Is this Richard? Yeah. Hey, this is Lionel Richie. I swear to God. And again, he just said, man, I heard your tape, and I, you know, I don't know that there's really any, anything I can do for you, but you should have heard my first four songs, man. He goes, you're really talented. You should really think about coming to L.A. And he said, I'm sure your parents will want to kill me for saying that you should just seize the moment, but you know, he said, I don't know what you're going to learn at college about writing songs because you, you just need to write more songs. Like you're really talented and you, I love your voice and right. So I graduated from high school. A few months later, I moved, I come out to LA. He said, look me up. He gave me a number to call. My dad brought me out to LA and Lionel invited us. He said, I'm in the studio making my first solo record. Come by the studio tomorrow. I swear to God, dude, this is what happened. We, we just went over there to say hello and to meet him. And I was such a fan of the Commodores and Lionel and, 
and they were working on this song called You Are. You Are the Of course, song. yeah. And they were doing background vocals with the, a group of four, Lionel and three other background singers. And I guess they had been working on this thing for like a day and a half. And I remember hearing that, and my dad and I looked at each other and said, a day and a half for background vocals? Like... They That's couldn't ridiculous. nail the harmonies or they didn't have the parts right. Couldn't have, they couldn't were figure the parts out the not blend. Quite right. Where the it blend was the wasn't blend, quite right. Yeah. But they were slaving over this for like a day and a half on the same song. And I could see Lionel was a little frustrated. But at one point, and he shook his head like, no, again, that's still not right. And all of a sudden he turns and he looks through the glass. And I'm sitting on this couch with my dad watching them. And Lionel points to me. He goes, hey, come out here. And I went, huh? He said, I got an idea. Come out here. He goes, you've been listening. He says, do you know what, you, could you hear what part I was singing? And I went, yeah. And he went, okay, I want you to sing my part. And I'm going to go in the control room. And Debbie, you switch your part to whatever. It was Deborah Thomas and a guy oh, sure. named uh, uh, Cochran, uh, David Cochran. So he goes in the control room. They roll the chorus. We sing the part. And I, I just remember seeing Lionel's hands go up like field goal. He went, that's the sound. Oh, wow. And I had a gig. And he said, you come back here every day. Whether you're singing or not, you have, you have every invitation to be at the studio and watch me make this album. And sometimes I'm going to use you as a background singer and sometimes I won't, but you're always welcome to did be here. Did you ever here. play on anything? No. But you did sing. You sang backgrounds on a I bunch of songs? I sang on four songs on, the, on that and four songs on that first album. And then I sang on All Night Long on the second album and Running With The Night. Because months later, he's back in the studio and he's like, come on down. Did you tour with him at all? No. Wow, that's an unbelievable story. And then story, he man. recommended me that year to Kenny Rogers, his buddy. Right who said, I need some new blood in, my, in the studio. I'm making a new album. He goes, you got to use this kid, Richard Marks. He's, he, he's got a great range, and he's a really good background singer. So I get a call for two days of recording with Kenny Rogers. I go over the first day. I do a bunch of background vocals. I overhear Kenny telling his producer that they're one song short. He says, man, we, need, we still need one more ballad. And I went home that night, knowing I had a session the next day, and I wrote this song called Crazy. And the next day, on a... We had, and luckily Kenny was even in the studio because a lot of time the artist wasn't even of in the course. studio. And I walked over. I remember my legs were shaking because it's just so not cool. Oh, to you do. can't do it. The song better be fucking amazing. Right. And I didn't know if it was amazing. I just thought it was what he was looking for. But I was 19, dude. I was so scared I was going to get fired for this. This is my favorite stories. In the, this is my favorite kind of story in the world. And he said, So uh, what'd you say to him? I went up to him and, and, he just sort of saw me standing there and we were about to go back out and do some more. He goes, you sound really good, Richard. I'm glad Lionel recommended you. And I said, listen, uh, I'm also a songwriter. And as the words came out of my oh, mouth. Yeah, no, mortifying. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I'm sure he's going, oh, awesome. Tell me more. Yeah. And he just kind of gave me that look. And I said, look, I'm so sorry. And I know this is probably not cool, but I overheard you yesterday saying that there's this, like a, you need one more song and it's a ballad. And I said, and I, I wrote something last night. And he said, okay, well, uh, where's, the, where's the tape? I'll take it home. And I said, well, I don't have any. He goes, all right. He goes, hey, give me 10 minutes. And we went out, and he slid the glass door in the ISO booth where the piano was. Yeah. And he said, let's hear it. Now, 1 to 10, how nervous are you? I'm how shitting myself. Is part of you confident that you know you can put this like off Like the worst across? diarrhea ever. Right. You're dying. There's enough confidence in me that I thought, I remember just saying to myself, it's a good song. It's a good song. Right. You're not gonna look he, like an, you knew you weren't going to look like an idiot. I knew I wasn't going to look like an asshole. Because you'd prepared for right. years. It may be like he'd be like, that's yeah, not for me or whatever. I knew that that was possible. But all these things, this conversation in my head was, of course. but I'm not going to get kicked out of the studio for this. I just couldn't believe that he was saying. So I remember my hands were shaking. I could barely play the piano. <laughs> of course. And then he sat next to me on the stool to listen. And <laughs> you, you are going to love this. I do the whole song pretty, pretty flawlessly. And I get to the end of the song. And the end of the song, the way I wrote it was, Cause you are the dream that finally came true. And all that. And the little post-chorus thing. Yeah. And I finish the song. And he goes, that's beautiful. He goes, hey, you know, what's, what's the part you used to, you are the dream that finally came true? He used to play that part again. So I did it. You are the dream that finally came true. And he goes, is there any way that you could say you are the dream that finally came true for me? And I went, 
well, I could just go, came true. And then I went like this. Went, For me. He went, yes, yes. Took 50% of the song. Of course he did. <laughs> He, he said it, we look at the credits. He said we co-wrote it. Look at the credits. It says written when, by Kenny Rogers and Richard Marks. When did he tell you that? Right before he was gonna record it. So then he goes into this. Does he tell the producer we got a song? Yes, he tells the producer, "Hey, Richard came up with a great song. Let's. Wh when can we cut it? Oh, next week. Okay. So then a few days later, his lawyer or somebody called. The, I had I didn't have a manager or anything, but I had right. an attorney because I you know about yeah. to get why I even had an attorney. Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was direct to me. And they said, you know, well, Kenny would like uh, to split this song 50-50. And at first I was pissed off. Yes. And Kenny said, and he, look, I'm still friendly with him. And we've had this conversation so many times. But Kenny said to me, I called him. And I said, look, I'm really excited about this. I said, but you think you wrote half the song? He goes, no. He goes, of course I didn't. I know what I contributed. But she says, you know what I think? I think if I told you I'll record it, but I'm taking 100% of your publishing, you would go for it. So I'm only asking for half. <laughs> veteran move, man. Dude. That is a veteran and I hung old the phone record and I business was like, move. Okay. And I, was, I remember being a little indignant about it, but I was getting my first cut. Yeah, well, that I'll, led I'll, to two other songs on that same album, which went platinum. Co-written? Yes. One with, with, and that's how I sort of met David Foster. Because we wrote this one with David Foster called What About Me? And that went to, no, that was my first charted single and it went to number one on the AC chart. And then Crazy came out Adult and was number one country. That's an incredible story. Right? So and, my song, and my songwriting career was and you get, off well, to the Then races. you get signed to a publishing deal right then, right? No. You didn't want to do. Kenny offered me a publishing deal. And you and turned I never, it down. I never took one. Right. So you didn't take a publishing deal. My dad deal was then. like, all you have are your songs. Don't sell your songs. That's correct. I didn't do that until end of the 2000s i mean yeah like 2009 i finally so made you never made deal. a publishing deal back then no just like administration deals or whatever they were only admin yeah so when sorry we're jumping all no, over this the is place, great but no we're on actually don't worry i got it and man. we will so, get back to right here uh, we're gonna get the whole thing yeah so you're you get these couple songs cut, but you still want to be an artist. Yeah. And meaning you want to be the singer of, of these songs. So how did you get to the place where David Foster looked at you and was like, forget about it, man? So that's one of the early projects I did with David. And I was a big fan of David's work behind the scenes. I remember my dad bringing me to the recording studio with, when, Dave, when, when I was like eight or seven. Yeah. And David was playing on the session. I remember my father saying... Because I, it's just emblazoned in my mind. That man's name is David Foster. He's a, he was the arranger on this session yeah. and playing piano. He's the piano player, and my dad said that guy's going to be the biggest producer. Yep. yep, in the whole business. And I remember thinking, and producer in records means the guy making the record. I was like, oh, and I remember staring at him for like a whole day to try to yeah. understand what he was doing. So yeah. he was a giant, giant. Even then, and he had a, he had a, a, a skill set that was. There, well, and still is. Well, but. that's what's in, what's important is everyone knew he was the cat. Like as Ted Templeman likes to say, like the he cat. was the cat, right? He was the cat. And so you had the cat telling you, well, how did he say this to you? Where were you? Well, you know, back up a year and a half or, yes. or almost two years. So I met him. I really, I met him. I can't remember how I actually met David. It was something like that. And then I didn't see him for a long time, but I was a big fan of like, I knew all the stuff that he had played on and arranged. And because when I met him, he'd only produced he had just done the chicago 16 the hard to say i'm sorry yeah so he was finally becoming a big producer but he'd been at it for a while right yes but i knew all the stuff he had done i knew songs he played piano on because every time i'd hear something that i really loved i'd go fuck david foster again yes uh first of all i thought he was black because he played on so many great r&b records right so when i met him and he was this white canadian dude uh that was surprising but we hit it off um we ended up um I remember the, our friendship sort of cemented at after a Lionel session because I recommended David to Lionel without even knowing David. I said to Lionel, you need to work with this guy, David Foster. To get him to play or produce or arrange? Well, I just said, you should write some songs with David Foster or whatever. Right. And Lionel was like, yeah, I know who he is, but I don't know. And so he ended up... And were you angling to produce Lionel then or no? Oh, no, no it wasn't no, even no. in your head no. to produce no, then? No. The last thing he needed was me <laughs> or, you know. Yes. Um, and so... One night, 
he was in the studio with David doing a demo and called me, Lionel called me. He said, hey, I'm over. He says, I took your advice and I, I'm writing a song with David Foster. We wrote, we got a little track going, but I got to go to dinner and we need a bunch of background vocals. Will you come over here? And I said, yeah, I'll be right there. So I go over, Lionel leaves and it's just me and Foster till like two in the morning and David's like, oh man, you're a badass. Like you can sing all these parts. Like how about this? And we try this and so I'm in the studio singing all these background vocal parts and I might have even played a, another like a keyboard part or something. And then we ended up finding some late night diner. Sure. And we went and had a bite and we just hit it off. So then he was like, man, I need you. I want you around me. I want like I'm doing a bunch of projects. So he got me in on the St. Almost Fire soundtrack and he got me in on an Olivia and John record. And like so I, but we would just hang out and became great friends. Right. He was kind of like a big brother. And he knew this whole time, I would play him demos of Shit Known Better or this song or that song, and and he would never really react one way or the other. Really, he would just be like, "Oh, nice" or something. He would, and I'd be like, and yeah. there was a part of me that was kind of waiting for him to go, "Dude, I, I, I'll produce you. you. I'll produce go. you. I'll get you a deal. Let's go." And he never did. So finally, we I did a showcase somewhere to try to get some interest. And I was nervous as can be, but it was okay. It wasn't, certainly wasn't great. It was the first time I'd ever been on stage. I, I didn't play in bands and stuff in high school. I was like a studio guy. I was, and so I, I did this showcase somewhere at a club and he came and the next day we were in the studio for doing something and he said, listen, I need to tell you something. And I'm just telling you this because I want to save you time. Right. And I went, okay. And he went, you shouldn't sing. Oh. And I went, what? He said, you're not a singer. You're not a performer. You're a really good songwriter. You're on your way to being a great songwriter. You're going to be a producer like me, but this is ridiculous. Like, you don't have it. Brian, it was like... Oh, that's a gut shot, man. Dude, you're I was 19 years old or 20 years old. And recently, and we're not pals anymore. I mean, we see each other, but Did we're not... Did that end the friendship, though? It certainly fractured it. Um, but recently, he called me just a few months ago and asked me if I would sit down for this documentary movie that they're trying to make on him. And I said, what do you, for, what do you want me to say? He goes, well, I want you to tell the story about how I told you you wouldn't make it. And I said, well, listen, first, I have no interest in that. Second of all, I'm just sort of baffled why you would want a story out there that you tried to crush the dreams of a 19-year-old kid. Like, why? who would want that out there? Like, I don't get it. Like, but whatever, look, you know, I'm not interested, but good luck with the thing. And we, we're not, we, we don't really get along, you know, like I, 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 I have nothing but respect for his talent. Well, he's a, yeah, he's as good as, he's as good as you could be. He's as that, good as you can that, be. He's as good as you could be. But we're, we're not pals. Like, I, you know. And so you just turned it down. Yeah. I just said, no, thanks. I don't. I, I think don't. maybe he wanted it so that he could show that he was fallible and that if you're somebody. So wait, how did you receive it, Richard? So oh, you it's, hear it that just from him. killed me. Did it me. bother you for a night, a week, a month? It killed me. It, it really hurt me for a while. It was like having your somebody you love. Like, I loved the guy, like oh, as a brother. Yes. It would be like having sort of like, I mean, this is an extreme example. It's like, you're, it's like your dad saying, you know, you're really ugly. Yeah, sure. No, because this meant so much. Even and I, being I a singer meant everything so to you. And maybe it also really bothered me because I did respect him so much that I thought maybe he's right. But then that only lasted like a week. And then I was like, I was like, fuck that guy. Right. First of all, fuck you for telling a 19-year-old kid to give up his dream. Fuck you. Right. Because he was like a 30-year-old man. Yeah. Then. Yeah. He was in his early 30s. And so then it became a little bit, for a, for a brief time, it was fuel. And so I'd say for the, and that's the year I got my record deal. And there was a part of me that was like, yeah, I'm going to fucking shove this up your ass. Good. Right. But well, but you knew you weren't crazy. But I'm also I, I so I have to say it bothers me even saying it now because I don't want to give him that satisfaction. Yeah, but but no, these are listen. You're actually helping somebody we don't know listening. Yeah. who's dealing with a rejection yesterday for yeah. something they slaved away on. Yeah, that's why it's worth it, right? Yeah, because someone's listening to this and they're like, someone just told them yesterday that what they had was not valuable. And David's defense over the years is like, you know, yes, it's true. I did say that, but like I, I, what I did say, well, you always leave out the fact that I said you were going to be a great producer. And I was like, no, I don't leave that out, but it, who cares? Like you still said what you said, dude. Like, 
Right. What's the point? What was the point of that? Well, and also you had Lionel on the other side. Also, you'd introduced him to Lionel. Like, yeah. you just... He, also, everyone was doing a lot of coke in those days, so yeah. who knows what... Well, I know, I know for a fact that, that David is like... He's such a drug virgin. He's Even like, then, he was. Oh, but, yeah. But you know, the studios then. I mean, I no, remember I remember being a kid, and when I would go with my father, my father would say, you're going to see... Because my yeah. dad was very square about that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And he would say... You're gonna see all these drugs. I mean, Crazy he wasn't shit. square, meaning he didn't know. He just didn't. We grew up so far from it. Yeah. Then when we would go into it, and he would go, "You're gonna see all these people doing all this stuff. Just watch what happens to them over the course of the night." As a way to say, you shouldn't be like that. Yeah. But you know, I was around all those dude. I mean, I was around all those guys making all those. I mean, I was never a drug guy. I've, to this day, I've never done coke ever in my life. Right. Me neither. But it, I'd be there would be lines being. You done would just see it. I would my watch own sessions. The, I would watch the effect that it had on yeah, these people. Yeah, yeah. And I would go like, well, that seems, yeah. Now, know, this, unlike uh, pot didn't seem to make people bad. I would love to blame this all on Coke, but well, it was can't. just, it's, I can't. But so then how did, so you get that rejection. You said mm-hmm. you got a few others from record. Oh yeah. Yeah, for, yeah. Yeah. For years. Right. Mm-hmm. What, what made you keep going, dude? What did you, what, where was the reinforcement where you knew I had to, you just said the word I knew. Right. Not that I would have huge hit songs, but I knew that I was going to be successful as an artist in some way, shape, or form. Did you then start performing so you could get a reaction from yeah. people? Yeah. I started playing club dates when, like, and you, this is when you, you pay the club to play. Yeah, sure. Play, Showcases. You know? Well, you would make, you were also making some money as a songer. Yeah, I was doing okay. So you knew you were, you knew, hey, and you, what do you think the energy was? This is another thing, because people ask me this all the time. And it's really so hard to put this in words, but two different people could walk onto the set of my show in a, uh, a small kind of a job. Mm-hmm. Somehow one person is going to start getting me to give them all sorts of responsibility and suddenly wake up and they're helping Dave and me make the show. Yeah. And the other person is going to have been too eager, said the wrong thing, yep. made me feel uncomfortable and not get invited back. Yeah. What, so you had this ability, right? But a lot of people can sing harmony and a lot of people can arrange harmony, right? What do you think was the energy you would bring into these situations? It's a really good question, dude. And back to David on this one. He, because I was getting so much work in that way and, and doing stuff with him, he would say to me, you know how to hang. He said, when you're in the room, That's he so said, big. like he said, you know when to tell the funny joke and when to just shut the fuck up. And you know when to be, uh, and he said, you, it's, oh, it was also that at any given time if somebody said, hey, can you, I'd be like, got it, I'm on it. But also being funny and being, Yep, and letting certain people know, like sometimes I was working with these amazing people that I really admired, and without germing them, I would say something like, you know, I just want to say that this song, and I'd pick some obscure song, and people would be like, you know that song? Like it would be flattering to them, but I wasn't just doing that. I was being sincere, you know? Yes. Um, and and picking your, could, you would pick your spots. But yeah, I would pick and my you spots. would lay back until it was time. Totally. It's so funny because you like, don't want to be that guy that's always trying to be. Top of the beat. You That's don't want to always play on the top of the beat. Right. right? No, you don't. Oh, man, I'm totally stealing that. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, sometimes I mean, you got to play behind the beat. Sometimes man. you just got to sit it's back. so much sexier. And play behind the beat just a little bit and then make people lean into you. Let them totally, find your tempo. Totally. Right? So cause I had a Mike DeLuca, who's my dear friend and yeah. one of the most successful producers in Incredible, all of Hollywood, yeah. friends for 20 years. He was on the podcast recently and he talked about hanging back in these meetings. Everybody's always trying to make, and he's like, if you just step back. Just listen for a minute and figure out where you can add value. Yeah. It makes a huge difference. It sounds like you were able to do that in these studio environments. Yes. And I guess you grew up in a studio. Well, I had that, like I said, I had a leg up on that way. So when I was, even in that first day of recording with Lionel, I, my dad told the story for years. He said, Richard's out there and he's like, he's so freaked out that he's on this, now he's on this session. And he said, within 20 minutes... Richard was cutting the singers off because right. the, he was like, no one's cutting anybody off. No one's cutting us off. So I just did it. I was like, okay. And then, yeah, you mean cut them off. Because I knew what I was doing. He's making the gesture like a conductor makes when, it, right. when they should stop. Right. Because the idea is, yeah, you were able to, you had command of this. Right. What I, you knew, were doing. I knew the room. No, I, the, knowing the room thing, people sometimes ask because I grew up in a house with a successful father. And when people wonder about what the advantages of that were, uh, for me, they were endless. So many advantages, it's hard to even state them. But maybe the biggest was I got very comfortable being in rooms with people making important decisions yeah. and solving tough problems in creative fields. Yeah. 
And just being in those rooms from the age of eight, it, yeah. it's not the connections. It's the ability to maximize totally. the situation. Totally. Because you learned how. You watched the guy who came in and fucked it up. And then you watched David Hungate come in and everyone just wanted him to play bass on every session. Right. Because he was a great hang. Right. Great at the bass. Right. But also... But there were other guys who were really good at the bass that you just didn't really want to hang out with them. Like, like you got to spend two hours in a room with somebody. Yeah. Why not make it be somebody that's fun? Right. Pick a guy who you want to kind of hang out with. Yeah, totally. And so there's a, that's a, obviously a talent that you... Was that conscious? Were you aware of that stuff? Or was it just like no, I think you were I, natural I, I think at it? it was, no, I think it was always my personality. You know, I, I, um, I felt like... I, I always felt... Once I left high school, I felt like I belonged in every room I was in. And, yes. And not in a cocky way, but in a con confident way. And then, it's, look, I think it's, I think it's just in human nature in life. Forget about it in your business life or your industry life. But I think that knowing when to be confident and when to be self-deprecating yes. is important. Because we're, it's one of the things, like, you know, weird segue is like I was thinking about, because I didn't realize when we, when I got here that this is where you do the show. Yeah. And so it made me think about the show and I'm way behind. I'm just starting the third season, but, and then we'll talk about that another time. But I, I told you oh, I how much you I love the show. The I show. love that like, you I the show. I fucking love the show so much. But, oh, we should walk out. I'll introduce you to Damien before we. Yeah, I would love yeah. that. But uh, the characters in this show, unlike most series, is no one is all good. That's right. And no one is all bad. It's all gray. Because there's no such thing. Right. But these cartoons that we see, like... Well, also the music... I will just say, the music business... But gives no one both is of one us thing. A, but the music business gives you a very clear understanding yeah. of that. I'm going to try to think of someone dead because I don't want to insult the living people. Right. But, you know, um, Yetnikov, like, you would walk into a room... Right. And you would know, you would see the duality right there. You'd see right. what was charming, and you'd see what was horrible. Right. And then you'd have to fucking grapple with mm -hmm. what that all meant, right? Yeah. yeah. So you just could, I mean, I, you just But felt like it. the characters that you have created in this show, no one is um, one thing. And so, unfortunately, a lot of people try to be one thing. They try to be 100% funny and ch or charming to yeah. the point where it's nauseating. And I think that I just sort of had a natural thing where sometimes I would be the funny guy for 10 minutes and then I'd be sort of hanging back listening and, and it was, it right. was just comfortable. I was comfortable to be around. And you had in your head or I like, look out, this is going to be my life out with these yeah. people in, in this In some world. way, shape or form. I have to do this. Yeah. Was, and, and was becoming a star like the thing where you like, I have to be on MTV and for a while it on was, the yeah. stage, that's what. You like, I have to, it has to be me. I, I needed to, somehow... to experience that. Yeah, where do you think that need came from? Do you know? I don't. It was just sort of like I always, I just wanted, I, I didn't think small. Right. You know? It, it's interesting because when I did get a record deal and when I did have my first hit, I, I had sort of made friends with the idea of maybe just being really successful as a songwriter and producer and, and not ever uh, giving up the artist thing, but, and then it exploded. Of course. And, and it was, uh, you know, this is a whole nother thing and I'm sure you've talked to so many people about it, but it was, uh, very unsettling. And, um, of course I thought I would take to it so well and I didn't like, I, I was all, I've always been a pretty private guy and literally it was like Tuesday afternoon. I'm on the road playing clubs, trying to promote my record, and nobody gives a shit who I am. And then MTV plays my video that day, and the next day I go to a mall, and there's 10 people right. following me and like coming up to me, and I'm going, what the fuck's happening right now? And at first it's exhilarating and fun, and then it gets bigger and bigger, and the next thing you know, you're having to manage it in your own head. And I always just wanted so badly to be gracious and sometimes I was really good at that, and sometimes I was really well, bad I, at that. Well, I, I read this thing that you said. I read some interview uh, where you talked about how it only, in the beginning, you were so worried about losing it, not that you couldn't yeah. enjoy the success of I it. I never celebrated. The ambition you didn't celebrate. I celebrate now. Right, but then you didn't. So a song would go to number one, or you might notice it for a second. I, I relate to this so heavy. I remember after the third season, when we got the phone call that season four of Billions was picked up, Either, no, I guess season three was picked up after my, I remember 
uh, Dave and I, my partner, lifelong best friend, creative partner, were sitting mm-hmm. in our office and my father called and he said, so you guys got picked up? And I said, yeah. And he goes, so what are you doing to celebrate? And I said, well, Dave's over at his desk. I'm at mine. We're writing the next. And he goes, no, jerks. Just take a minute. Yeah. You idiots. He goes, no, no, no. Take your wives. Yeah. Tonight. Yeah. Go get a, the best bottle of something you can find and go and memorialize the fact. Yes. That you've achieved this thing you've dreamed of for the last 20 years. Dude. And I was like, but I got to, how? I, no, I, I don't want to, I can't slow down. Then it'll, and you get that superstition. Of, then of it'll course. all go away. Right. But it won't. No, right. And you all you're going to gonna do is later go, why the fuck didn't I? So when I met Daisy, my wife. Yes. You know, I met her seven years ago. And in, our, in the early days of our dating, one time we were on the phone, I was doing, a, I was out on the road uh, sitting in with this band called Vertical Horizon, and th- he's my best friend, and Matt Scannell, and I was going through a, a really rough personal time, and so I just went out and played guitar in, right. his, in their, in their so band. Cool. And one night, I was on the phone with Daisy, and we were just getting to know each other, really. And she was really the first person I dated after a, a very long marriage, and, and so I... We're getting to know each other, and she says, "Hey, I was curious today. When you, in, when you had your heyday of number one, this and number one album, and how did you celebrate?" And I went, "What?" Right. She said, "Like for instance, when you had your number one album, Repeat Offender. What'd you do that night?" And I went, "I was on tour. I didn't celebrate." Yeah. And she went, "Oh, Richard Marks, you must always celebrate." And she said, "You know what?" And she said something to me, Brian, in that conversation that was. So beautiful. She said, you're more successful right this second than you'll ever be, and it's time to celebrate. And in my mind, I wasn't. It was like, yeah, my heyday was before, and I'm just sort of like, but from that point on, we celebrate everything. I love it. No, you have to. Yeah. So take me to writing right here, right here, waiting. So right here, Let's, waiting. So you're sitting there. Where are you in your life when you're writing that? Song? I'm on. I'm on my first tour. The album's doing. The first album's blowing up. You've been on MTV. Yeah, it's, it's I'm a happening. Star. You're a star, and uh, I'm an MTV darling. I'm you know I've had like four huge singles in a row. I'm dating my wife. I've been dating her for like two years. My ex-wife Cynthia. And Cynthia was an actress. She was in Staying Alive and Flashdance. Right. And, and she got offered this movie. She didn't work for a while. And she was starting to get frustrated. So she took this movie in South Africa. And so she was in South Africa and Namibia. And, and this is when I was touring. Yes. And so at one point, I, I carved out a break in the tour so that I could go be with her. And this is during apartheid. So, and I wasn't there to perform. Right. But they denied my visa because they found out I was a performer. So long story short, three months, I didn't see her. And so I, now I had this fucking time off of my tour. Right. And you're also, I mean, I know what that time in the world was like. I mean, you literally have girls just trying to bang your yeah. Yeah. door down at your hotel. You're trying to stay faithfully married. You're young. Right. I mean, the world's insane. I, yeah. I just remember. Sure. And I say girls advisedly. I mean, I'm talking about people from 18 to Right. 15. Well, I was 24. Right. Yeah. You know? So it's like all that stuff. Right. Yeah. So... Um, and so, so you're I, managing this whole life. I didn't really wrestle with that too much. There was always a part of me that like, once I started to get that female attention that I always wanted yes. when I was young, and I realized I was getting it for all the wrong reasons, yes. I was like, I, I, in my brain, I'd be like, where were you when I was 19? Right. Like, you had the conscious thought. Yeah. You did. You had I that conscious thought. I would be like, thought. this has got nothing to do with me. I used to say, if Quasimodo sang Hold On To The Night, <laughs> he would be getting laid every day. <laughs> right. So... I had this time off. Now we don't, I don't have a tour to do because I've got this time off. I was supposed to be with her and I can't see her. And this is way before FaceTime. There's no FaceTime, right. Yeah, of course. And I went over to a buddy's house to write an angry rock song. And we wrote this, like, I never recorded it. It was so heavy for me. And just sort of like angry and guitars and bleh and and. He went, we finished the song, and he went into his house. We, his studio was in the garage, and he had a little uh, Wurlitzer electric piano. Yes. And I went over and sat down at the piano, and I wrote Right Here Waiting in 17 minutes. No, the whole song. The whole song. Had you had the, no, the piano figure? Nothing. Amazing. Dude, never happened before or since. That The way. song poured out of you. It it was as if did I did. You had call him out to record it. it right away. Yeah, I said, "Get a cassette machine immediately." You did. Yeah, 
So you finish it. Do you say to yourself, I just wrote a number one record? Like no. A, or a number one song? No. No. I, I said I wrote a really, really good song. And it was all about sending that to her. It was like I just needed to say to – I needed her to know how I was feeling. And, and when you played it for your buddy, what happened? Did he know? He, he shit. He right. Just, he, he freaked went, out, oh my God. right? It's a crazy thing when someone plays you a hit song. Like I've had that experience, you know? And when they play you a hit song – Right yeah. away. Yeah. The electric, the thing that happens in the room. Well, I couldn't, cause lyrics are really hard for me. Music comes to me very quickly and then I really slave over the lyrics. This, I couldn't write fast enough. And there was just an envelope at his house. And so I wrote down all the lyrics and then I, hand, and then I really carefully wrote them out so that I could make a little demo of it. Two years later, the song is number one and it's huge. And the week that it was number one, even though I didn't celebrate it, his, my friends, his name is Bruce Geich, and he and I wrote Don't Mean Nothing together, and he's a great guy. He, um, he gave me this present, and I opened it up, and it's a frame. He kept the envelope. That's so cool. Of my, right, so I have Do you have it? I have it. It's in my house. And then who was the first person you played it for? Her. Oh, no, no, no. My mother. You called her and sang it to I her called, over the phone? Well, she was living near me. My dad was away on a business trip or something. And I called my mom. I said, I, I wrote a song for Cynthia and I need to play it for you. And I went over to her house. That's my favorite. And she too. cried. She had tears streaming down her face. But then she said, Richard, this is a big, big song. <laughs> That's so great. And I went, really? You think so? She goes, oh, honey. I didn't believe it. Plus, I was making rock records, right? Right. So it was here was this piano ballad, and I was like, there was a part of me that was like, I'm not gonna like feed into that. I'm not gonna let them get me, you know. Right. Even though I loved it, right. I thought I'm gonna get beat to but shit. But then you over played this. it for the record company, right? And they must have immediately been like, well, that's the future. That's the thing. That's yeah. this is who you are. Yeah. This is a really quick story. Yeah, tell it. Go. I I'm in the studio, and I recorded the song. The track came together really quickly, and I went in to do the vocal. And I had written this killer power ballad, like arena power ballad with Fee Wayville from the Tubes, the tubes my right. other best friend. And we just, I just produced a new album for him that I, I got to send you that's so fucking good. I was good. such a big Tubes dude. You have no idea. I can still name like the whole, all the members. Of yeah. the, like, I was such a big fan. Well, so we just finished a new album for Fee. And Spooner? Really was that one of the guys in the band? Yeah, Bill Spooner. Bill Spooner, Spooner right? Yeah. So okay. Fee and I are like great friends at this point, And we've written the ballad for the second album called No Sleepless Nights. And he's so excited. He's already buying his Ferrari, right? Right. And he came by the studio. He would always come by and hang out at the studio. So he comes in and he says to the engineer, what's, what, what's, what's he doing? He goes, oh, he just, he cut this new song. We're just going to lay it down to see how it is. And I did the vocal in two takes. But the first take, Fee's in the control room and I sing right here waiting down, full take. And I look up and Fee, Fee hits the talk back and he goes, God damn it! Ah, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. He knew that you just his song was over. It cracked me up, and if sure enough, it it, it knocked course. his song of off course the album. Of course, it knocked off the record. Like, and oh, he that's went, motherfucker. Great. He goes, you know what? I'm really pissed off. But he goes, this is he said, this is a classic. This is just unbelievable. Right. He recognized. Everybody it. knew. Everybody knew. Yeah, and by the way, if you're listening to this, you don't know who the, who the tubes are, and you might not because they were. I'll talk to yeah. you later. That one and, and uh, White Punks on White Dope. White Punks on Dope. They were, they were an incredible. And She's a Beauty. She's a Beauty. They had some really classic. What do you want from life? Oh, just an incredible band. I always thought he could is the only person who could have actually replaced David Lee Roth. Yeah. Like if you think about it, he could have sung those songs. Totally. And what is, he's the best showman you'll ever see. Incredible showman. So just a couple more things because. We're, we're going to have to go soon. I have, I have a couple questions for you. Uh, three quick questions. You got financial security at such a young age. How did that... Uh, and you were raised with privilege, so it's not like you went from being broke. No, 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 no. But what did it... Did it fuck you up at all, or was it all right? Like you were good? No, I've always been really, really careful with my money, and I've always been... Uh, look, my dad um, was a brilliant, brilliant... He was the most talented musician I ever knew, but he was... Uh, he had his own company, Right. right. So even when I was starting to have some success as a songwriter, he sat me down and he said, look, I don't want to sound cliched about this, but I need to remind you that it's called the music business. Really? So you had that conversation? Yeah. And he sat me down and he said, listen, I, I don't worry that you're going to get seduced by like, and become a spender and like, get in, he says, I know you, you're not going to be that person, but I need to help you 
manage your money because you're, you might make a lot of money. And he helped me find a great business manager who's still my business manager to this day, Bernie Goodvie. And we, we've always been conservative about it and, and careful. And I, I stopped worrying about money a long time ago. Right, but I'm saying by 25, you were uh, yeah. like... Well, I remember. I remember. When I wanted to be a millionaire at twenty-five, and I and right. I was, you became and, a millionaire at twenty-five, and but you were able to just be mellow about it somehow. Totally. That wasn't. That wasn't your drug. No. In a way, the no, success, no, I wasn't the like fame, a car guy. I didn't. The, I was the other stuff was the the success and yeah, being uh, living up to the idea of yourself was the yeah. thing that mattered. No, no, no. I, I was never about bling or you know Ferraris or like I, I was yes. just like. I, I never had my I, my biggest expenses, my biggest splurges, always were and still are, and even more so now. Travel, understandable experiences. Yeah, it's worth that. That's the thing for me. Probably, uh, uh, like books and music. Yeah, and like those things, and then yes, travel. Uh, did you? It's just because you mentioned Sam Cooke and Steve Perry. Did you and Steve Perry ever talk about Sam Cooke together? Sure. You did? Yeah. All right, good. Because that's the other person who was like so hugely influenced. Well, he was a huge influence. Steve Perry and Kenny Loggins were both uh, major, major vocal influences on me in high school. And people you got to know well. Well, Kenny Loggins Kenny, is a dear friend of mine. And I've worked with right? him a yeah. bunch. I never worked with Steve Perry, but I met him right after my first album was a hit. Or no, I didn't meet him. I somehow, I got on the phone with him. And I got to tell him like that I was such a hero of, he was such a hero of mine and and he was so nice to me on the phone, and he said, and I don't know whether he was just being nice or whatever, but he said, he says, you know what, man, I love your album. He goes, and I hear a little bit of me in there, man. Oh, that's awesome. And I went, you couldn't say anything nicer to me. That's the best thing, all you could hope to hear. Uh, if, if, if you had to uh, name your like songwriting Mount Olympus, three, four people, who would it be? Who would oh. be your four favorite sort of like songwriters that meant well, the most to you. Burt Bacharach, yes. who I've just been writing songs with the last that's couple incredible. of years, which is unbelievable. We wrote a song, dude, that's so gorgeous. I'm going to send it to you. I'm just going to text oh, you. Please do. Send it to me. Um, he's 91 years old and all he wants you to do is You just wrote a song songs. or is it on, on your new record? It's not on my new record. Because I listened to your new record last night and it's, I would just say, whatever your conception, uh, preconception of Richard Marx is, this album is so, it's just an absolute pleasure to listen Thanks, to. Thanks, man. I, I put really it on last night. I was it. writing and it was perfect. Like, it made you, me so happy. Thank you. I was glad that it was good. Like I was Thank like you. really yeah. happy. Because <laughs> you know, we're all, you know, at 50 years old, like yeah. you could not make a good record. Sure. But you made a really good record. Thanks, It's buddy. great. I really appreciate that. So, so you'd say Burt Bacharach. Burt Bacharach. Um, Sam Cooke for sure. Yes. Um, I'd go Billy Joel. Yeah, I think. I think we did on Twitter, didn't we do our We might have gone back and forth on Twitter. Yeah, Dylan. we had a, some of the same yes. favorites. Well, for me, it's Paul Simon and Dylan and our... Well, Paul Simon's Still Crazy After All These Years album is what really kind of made me really want to be a songwriter other than Sam Cooke. Yeah, do you know you know the songwriter? He's he's younger, um Josh Ritter. Do you know who he sure, is? Sure, of course. He's he, for me, he's got a lot of Paul Simon in, um, and what what are your uh Oh, you know who else I got to throw in there? Who? Fogarty. Yes, unbelievable. I was singing, uh, uh, have you ever seen the rain last night, yeah. actually, at home? Like, yeah, just and incredible. Bad Moon Rising. and Of course. Yeah. Down on the corner, even. Yeah. I mean, all, yeah, he was just one home run after another. Yeah. Um, and what would be, if someone's listening to this and they're like, oh, they're young, I kind of know who that dude is. What are your three favorite songs like that you've written? Oh. That somebody should go on Spotify or iTunes and check out. Okay. When You Loved Me. Yes. Through My Veins. And I'll go right here waiting because, well, it's hard for me because Don't Mean Nothing, I yeah, still... Yeah, sure, of course. And it's really what introduced... I remember the first time I heard Don't Mean Nothing. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck is that? Who is that? But right here waiting for the sheer simplicity of it. I've never written a song that and the simple. truth of the emotion of that song. Yeah, but it's also, yes, the truth of the emotion and the outpouring, like I couldn't keep up with it, like it wrote itself. But when I look, look at it, because I'm somebody that always wants to like throw a little surprise change here or there, or this song is so simple. First of all, a five-year-old can play that piano riff. Right. It's in C. It's in the key of C. Right. Okay. There's, it's just the most simple song. And anybody can remember the lyric and everybody's like, and there's something about the simplicity of it that makes me appreciate it almost like somebody else wrote it. You know, when that song comes on, I listen to it. I, I will always sing along to it. Right. Nice. You're waiting is 
a such a pure expression of what that kind of song is that it goes beyond the whole idea of like yes the cliche love song but it's yeah. not but the song i mentioned before through my veins is was never a single it's not on a successful album i think it's uh, the song i'm the most proud of and it's a song i wrote about my dad about dealing with the grief of losing my dad finally right. which i processed for years before i wrote that song um I think Through My Veins is my favorite song I've ever written, actually. All right. Well, that's great. I'm going to go listen to that song tonight. Richard Marks, thanks for coming and doing this. Richard's a great follow uh, on Twitter and a uh, an all-around uh, champion of a guy. Listen to his records. If you go look up all the songs that he's written that other artists have sang, whether you know it or not, you know the music of Richard Marks, which is going to be around uh, long after either of us are. So, Richard, thanks Dude, for doing this, man. what a pleasure. Thanks, buddy. It's great. Bye.